Well, again, good morning. My name is Eric. We are in week two of a new sermon series, and I could not be more excited about it. We are in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. Last week, we started talking about this new sermon series called The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why are we doing that? Because that's funny. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you see, some 500 years after Abram's having his encounters, then the children of Israel go down into Egypt, and then Moses leads them up out of Egypt into the wilderness. And there Moses sits down to explain to them who this, their God, is. And Moses recounts that as he was tending his sheep in the wilderness of Midian, he sees up on the mountain this strange sight, a bush that is on fire, that is being burnt, and yet is not consumed. And he approaches the bush, and the the voice from the bush says, I am God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that should stun us, but it probably doesn't. It's kind of like saying, I am the God of failure, laughter, and cheater. The sovereign creator of the cosmos identifies himself with a particular people, and this particular people aren't particularly awesome. And then God tells Moses, I want you to go get my people. He does. Brings them back out of Egypt into the land, and Moses sits down in the grit to tell them, this is what God is like. He's a big God. And so he writes Genesis 1 to 11 to show that God is a great big God. And here's the pattern. There's God. That's good news. There's people. That's wonderful news. There's sin. That's terrible news. There's judgment. That's the worst news. But there's a Savior over and over and over again. That's the pattern of Scripture. Every single one of the prophets in your Old Testament, from the four majors to the 12 minors, every single one follows the pattern. There's God. Yay. There's people. Even better, there's sin. You're kidding me. There's judgment. Oh, no. But there's a Savior. Next book. There's God. Yay. There's people. Even better, there's sin. Oh, no. There's judgment. Uh Uh-oh. But there's a Savior every time. For 11 chapters, half of human history, we get the story of man trying to reach up and grasp God. They even say, we will make a name for ourselves. And God says, you know what, that's about enough of that, and scatters them all over the world of different languages. And so we're introduced to one man, this guy named Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, he's called out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and he walks, he walks, he walks all the way, and he brings his people into the land of Canaan. And God makes him a promise. I'm going to make your name great. You can't do that. I'm going to make your name great. And be a blessing so that everyone around you will be blessed. I have a plan. I'm going to the God of the cosmos. I'm going to bring salvation and blessing through a single person. Now that should prepare us for something. I'm going to bring all blessing and goodness and bounty through one person. And so the next thing you hear is, well, Abram goes down to Egypt and he's a blah. Well, that would be a curse. He lies, and he brings curses down on Pharaoh's house. Like, that's not how it's supposed to go. And yet, God uses that time, brings Abram up out of Egypt. Genesis 13, we have this crazy, freaky story where there are these four kings in the north of Canaan, and they come down, and they war against five kings. And they got great names like Kurtolaomer. And the four kings wage war against the five kings, and the four kings win. The problem is... Well, there's a guy named Lot that gets caught up in the mix. You see, when they come up out of Egypt, Lot and Abram have so much stuff that there's no more room for all of their livestock and all all their material blessings to coexist. And so Abram says, you go to the right, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. Lot looks at the land. Abram looks at the Lord. Lot goes down to, well, perhaps you've heard of it, Sodom and Gomorrah, not 
particularly a favorite vacation destination. He goes down to the Jordan River Valley, and these four kings come down, and they wage war against the five kings, two of which are Sodom and Gomorrah, and the five kings lose. They take Lot and his stuff and his women and his children and his servants and his livestock, and they take them way far north. And Abram hears about it and says, oh, no, they didn't. That's in the Hebrew. And so Abram gets all of his people together, 318 trained men. Why? Abram knew something like this might happen. He has 318 servants. But Abram's like 85, by the way. He's like Clint Eastwood, this Abram. And he gets his people together, and they go all the way far north as Damascus, just ripping people as they go. And they get Lot, and they get everybody else that was captured and all the possessions, all the livestock, and they come back down through the land of Canaan. And they stop in Salem, Yerushalem, where they are introduced to Melchizedek, the priest king. And Abram is about to give Melchizedek some tithe. And then the king of Sodom comes out and goes, hey, but we've got all this stuff too. Why don't you take all of our stuff? And Abram goes, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you say that was from Sodom? No, we're good. We don't want that stuff. I don't want anybody to say that you made me rich. God has blessed us with abundance. And he tithes to Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And he goes back and he pitches his tent. He dwells temporarily, but he builds an altar, you see. This is Abram's life. He pitches a tent because he moves around, but he builds a permanent altar. That's the model of his life. Until finally, we get to chapter 15. After Abram has rightly tithed this priest king of God Most High, we're going to start off in Genesis now, chapter 15. We're going to learn our big idea for the day. It goes like this. God is faithful. Now, the observant amongst you might go, wait a second, he's cheating. That was last week's big idea. Uh Uh-huh. It is. It's the exact same notion. There's no need for me to get overly creative. Last week, God made a promise, and we learned that God is faithful. This week, we're going to see that God amplifies that promise by making a covenant to demonstrate that God is faithful. Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Literally, the one who comes from your body shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. This is God's word. Now, we're going to pick up and finish off the chapter here in a moment, but let me walk through these first six verses very efficiently if I can. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So about 10 years have passed. Abram is sitting in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is on the Euphrates River. He's 75, his barren Moon-worshipping wife, Sarai, is 66. Hope is over. The last family that would connect back to Shem, son of Noah, to Seth, the son of Adam, the last family is barren, sitting on the Euphrates River outside the land, worshipping the moon. Abram's father's name means moon. And yet God goes to him and brings him over. Abram is about 75 at that point. Ten years have gone by through all the battles of all the different kings where the four beat the five and then Abram beat the five, all that stuff, and the interaction with Melchizedek. Ten years have gone by. So now Abram's 85. Sarah, who's still barren, by the way, is now 75. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
fear not. Now, why does God start that way? Not because he's scary and terrifying. Oh, he is glorious and he's great and he's awesome and he's worthy of reverence and and fear and wonder. But that's not why God says this. Fear not, Abram. I know what's happening. I called you 10 years ago. 10 years have gone by and you're still wondering if it's actually going to happen. Don't be afraid. You get the idea that Abram's going, let me see. I'm now 85. She's 75. Did I mention she's also kind of like my sister? Ew, ew, ew. And she's still barren. And God says, and? Where's the problem? Abram, my word, my promise is so far superior to your perceived circumstances. That's important for all of us to remember. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Not what you did with 318 trained men when you went up to Damascus. I am your shield. I am the defender and the guarantor and the protector against everything that you have encountered, everything that you will encounter, because I have sworn by myself. God says, I swear to, um, I swear to, uh, I swear to, uh, well, me, because there's nothing like me. That's what Hebrews 6 says. He swears by himself because there's nothing else like him. I cannot fail on my promise or I will ungod myself. And I cannot ungod myself. That's the one thing God cannot do. So Abram, I don't understand the problem. Yeah, she's 75 and <laughs> barren. What's the problem? Abram, I am your shield. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but know this. God has a great imagination. See also the created universe. Like, who comes up with that? Really? Swirling supernovas and galaxies and like, you know, the sloth? Like, who thinks of this stuff? And yet God says, dude, Abram, you're not going to believe this. Your reward is going to be super great. But, oh, see, that's usually not how you want to start. But Abram's at least being honest. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? Like, that was really cool, the thing with all the livestock coming out of Egypt. Man, that was awesome. But you know what? Ten years has gone by. Hey, that was really cool, the stuff with all the excess livestock and blessing and and how we went up to Damascus and we beat those young punks in their skinny jeans. We took them, God. Yes, we did. But but it all comes down to the sun. Where's the sun? None of this happens without the provision of a son. I still don't have offspring. For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Apparently, Abram picked up some dude in Damascus and was like, hey, you want to work for me? I sure do. And now he's running all of Abram's affairs and estate. And according to law and custom at that time, that guy is going to inherit the house if Abram continues on childless. This Gentile is going to take over and own my, my property. Is that what you want, God? And God's like, what's the problem? I got this. Don't worry, Abram. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring. Second time he mentions that, just to make sure God understands that he hasn't you know, done anything yet. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Genesis 15.4 is a super central verse so that we understand the nature and the relationship between the church and Israel. Just to nerd out and geek out for one second here. Watch what God says to Abram in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. And in the background, you can hear Eliezer go, don't! Like, so close. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son. And literally, it's the son of, can I just, just literal translation, the son of your bowels. 
shall be your heir. Now, I don't recommend you go home and call your sons that, but that's what they are in Hebrew. The son of your bowels shall be your heir. In other words, my deliverer will come from your physical body. The church has not replaced Israel. God still has a plan for Israel because to fail to have a plan for Israel would make God fail to be God, and he can't do that. We see that even backed up in this little verse, Genesis 15, 4. He shall not be your heir. Verse 5, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Now, this is not a test. Let's see Abram start counting. Oh, missed one, loser. No, 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 it's not that. It's just God wanting to show him that he is so much above and beyond and bigger than Abram's perceived circumstances. Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram's going, yeah, but she's old, man. She's in there right now watching Matlock, having soup. How's this going to work out? God says, and? I promise, look at the stars. You're going to have more than that. Verse 6, I would contend, Genesis 15, 6, very possibly the most central and important verse in the whole of your Old Testament. I'll probably say something different next week, but for the next, you know, seven days, Genesis 15, 6, the most central, significant verse in the entirety of the Old Testament. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, I'm not the only one that thinks this is significant. The Apostle Paul thought this was the most important verse of the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul writes a little book, perhaps you've heard of it, it's 16 chapters long, and it's nothing more than his exposition of Genesis 15.6. The entire book of Romans is just Paul trying to explain the wonder, the gobsmacking glory of Genesis 15.6, that righteousness, that is the currency of God's kingdom, and it is not enough to merely have your sins forgiven. It's not enough to merely have your sin removed. You must also be replete with the righteousness of God. And Abram believed God, not just in God, although he did, but he believed God, and God filled his account. It's an accounting term. He credited it to him as righteousness. And Paul went, wait a second, that's been under my nose the whole time, Saul of Tarsus's nose anyway, but now that I see, it's not about at all what you do, it's belief, which always begs the question, so then what am I supposed to do? How do I just believe? And I would tell you very plainly, Belief is not something you decide. You believe something because you believe something. I walked around on all three floors this morning, and I watched as people streamed in, and they sat down, and not a single one of them had to go, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe this chair is going to hold me. I believe, I believe. No, man, y'all threw yourselves down like you owned the place. You just believe. And so I would tell you, if any of the things that we talk about on a Sunday morning, if any of the times you're in a Bible study, a men's group, a life group, you're hearing a, a sermon podcast or something, and you go, that's true, you believe. Stop trying. It's not so much a decision as it is a direction. You believe. Sometimes against explanation, sometimes against even evidence. But you believe. That's not your responsibility. I know we've tried so hard for the last 120 years in the Western world to say, you've got to make a decision, and you've got to accept Jesus into your heart. You've got to accept him. And I'm like, I, I really functionally, practically, I don't know what that actually means. I've never not accepted him. I love Jesus, man. There's never a time I didn't love Jesus. There's a lot of times I've been a backsliding fool. Believe. 
He is the Son of God. He lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. He is alive. Therefore, it's confirmed. All the stuff he says, it's verified and affirmed. I believe it. We'll talk more about that in a moment. The Apostle Paul writes all of Romans, especially chapter 4. He writes Galatians 3, the the half-brother of Jesus. And James chapter 2 talks about it. The writer of Hebrews talks about it in Hebrews chapter 6. Everything points to this. Faith comes, righteousness comes by faith and not through doing. Well, let me pick up speed here. Verse 7. Because now we're going to get sort of a pushing in and an amplification. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur and the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now remember, there's sort of a meta layer that you have to remember. This is Moses writing to the children of Israel as they're sitting in the wilderness coming up out of Egypt. It's the exact same expression that Moses tells or that God tells the Israelites as they come out of Egypt. I am the Lord, Yahweh, that brought you out of Egypt. And Moses tells him, this is what he said to your forefather Abraham. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur. And Moses is going, don't you see? Don't you get it? This is what God is like. He's a big God. He's an intimately involved God. He's a good God. You can trust him. You see, God is faithful. So Moses is doing important parallelism between their situation and that of their forefather Abraham. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. There was a purpose statement. Not just to make you wander around and wonder if this is all going to happen. No, no. I brought you for a purpose, and my purpose cannot, does not, will not fail. But he said, you're kidding me, Abe. For realsies, you ever been there? You still question, like, okay, God, but, 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 but this isn't going on my calendar or my timetable or my expectations. That's okay. God's unconcerned. But he said, oh, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? What are you going to do? How am I going to know this? We see this even in our culture and our context today. I get the privilege of counseling a whole lot of couples who are about to get married, and they say sweet, wonderful, gushy, mushy things to each other. I love you. I love you so much, too. Your hair smells so good. And they just say things. I'm like, hey, I'm in the room. Focus. And they promise all these things. I'm going to love you forever. I'm going to love you forever. I'm going to do good things forever. I'm going to do good things. And I'm like, right, good, keep going. But the thing is, if she fails on all of those statements, or if he fails on all of those statements, there's really no consequence. I mean, they might get their feelings hurt, but there's no real consequence, no real issue. And so finally, they continue to date, and they get engaged, and they continue to say things together, like, we're going to be together forever, da, 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 da. And, you know, there's still no consequence. And then finally, they show up someplace outside. It's July. I've sweat through three ties. It's really, really hot. I'm looking at you, Zach Gilmore. And I start to say some things to them. And I said, well, I want you to repeat after me. And I repeat these old English vows that nobody really understands what I'm saying. But what I'm saying in several, several sentences, I promise to never divorce you ever. That's what we're saying when we have a marriage. In fact, one couple said, I want you to actually have us say those exact words. I said, done. And it offended some other people, but that's what marriage vows always are. I promise to never divorce you ever. And then I pronounce them man and wife. But you know what? If one of them breaks that, there's still no real consequence. And so it's like the husband or the wife goes, but how will I know? How can I know that you're going to make good on this? And I go, ta-da, I have a license. Now we're going to make it legal, y'all. And I sign it, and it's witnessed, and they sign it. And now, if one of them violates the conditions of this contract and this covenant, now there's real consequences. Do you see? It's not just the words that we say. It's not just the, even the, the ceremony. Now there's an actual covenant contract in place that there will now be consequences for violation. Watch what happens. 
The Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Which just so happened to have just, oh, right over here. He just happens to have them right over here in the backyard, right? What he's essentially telling Abram, hey, I want you to draw up a marriage license. And this is how they did it in the old days. Abram would have had no wonder what was going on. He knew exactly what was going on. This is how people did contract and covenant back in his day. And the children of Israel to whom Moses is writing would have known exactly what God is doing. Verse 10, and he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half eh, because they're too small. And so what he's essentially doing is he's creating there's a half of a goat, half of a goat, half of a heifer, half of a heifer, half of a bird, half of a bird, and then a couple little birds. And he makes this lane. And everybody in that day and age knew if two kings were to strike a peace treaty, the two of them would literally hold hands and they would walk through the pieces together saying, if I break my end of the deal, may this happen to me. And everybody knew that. If I break my end of the deal, may this kind of thing exactly happen to me. See, we just said we're not going to betray one another, but now we're imposing consequences. Kings would do it. Households merging would do it. Business transactions. If I violate, may this happen to me. And then a very strange little verse happens. Verse 11, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And people have written books and allegorized this. Oh, that has to do with the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, that, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. No, no. All through Scripture, when someone is judged by God and they're destroyed, the birds, the unclean birds of the air come to feast on their carcasses. Who's ready for lunch and donuts? That's all that's going on here. It's, a, it's an amplification and a ratcheting up of the severity of judgment. We'll see this in Jeremiah chapter 34. King Zedekiah makes a covenant and he breaks it. And God says to Jeremiah, to Zedekiah, I will tear you to pieces like the pieces of the calf that you cut in half and the birds will come and feast on you. And so this is just a, a, an amplification of the seriousness of this covenant contract. God says, I want to make a marriage contract. And you get the sense that right now Abram's going, oh man, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. I know that you're faithful. I trust that. I've seen that. I get that. But I can't walk through there. Like, I, what about me? What, am I, what about my doubts? I mean, clearly I was sitting around waiting. Like, whoa, whoa, I trust that you can make this work, God, but I'm not so sure that I can hold up my end of the bargain. Have you ever been there? I call that Monday. Like, I get it. You're good. You're great. You're glorious. You're gracious. But I don't know that I can hold up my end. That's what God does in response. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. We don't know exactly what this means. This, this sort of all-consuming, immobilizing cloud of darkness and heavy dread falls upon him. We really haven't seen this before since Genesis 2, when Adam is put in a death-like trance, and he wakes up, whoa, where'd you come from? Adam is put into a trance, and he wakes up in covenant. Abram's going to be put into a death-like trance sleep, and he's going to wake up in covenant. And it's unbelievable what's going to happen here. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, I'm going to give you the whole timetable here, Abram, 
And I want you to think about what Abram's hearing because this is horrible. It's horrifying what he's going to hear and perhaps even see. Know for certain that your offspring, well, you're going to have offspring, all right, but they're going to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. Turns out it's going to be Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Do you see what Moses is doing as he's writing this? He's going, hey, you guys, I know that wasn't awesome, but this was all a part of God's plan. He's not been surprised. God is faithful. It was his purpose to take us down there, to refine for himself a people, to prepare us to be the point and instrument of his judgment back in this land. They will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And that word afflicted is the harshest punishment language that we see in Exodus as Pharaoh is afflicting and punishing the Israelites. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Oh, it's going to be hard. And a lot of your offspring are going to go, and none of them who go in are ever going to come out. In fact, Abram, this promise really isn't for you. Oh, it's going to be a blessing. to you. Your reward's going to be great, but you're never going to really live to see the fruition. In fact, by the time Abram dies, he owns one tiny little plot of land about the size of this stage in which is a cave, the cave of Machpelah, where he and his wife Sarah are buried. That's all he owns. Oh, but his reward was very, very great. God continues to explain, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. But you have been the instrumentality of my blessing and prosperity to everybody else. Now, verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This verse just shouldn't be in your Bible. Like, this is not how this is done. It's just too amazing. It's just too incredible. When a covenant is cut, when a contract is made, the contract is the thing, and then the covenant is the visible declaration of that contract. Two people always walk through together. But Abram is immobilized. He's paralyzed. He just has to sit there and watch this. As he's laying there, this fire pot, this, this smoking torch, walks through alone. Abram, I know you're afraid about holding up your end of the bargain. You're not going to be able to do it. And so when you don't, I will take the punishment for you. This is the gospel. God promises to bless through us. Bless us. He promises so that we can bless others. And when we fail, when we mess up, when we forget, when our eyes fall, when like Lot, we look at the land instead of the Lord, God says, I will have walked through the pieces. Now, this language, this fire pot and this smoking torch, nobody knows exactly how to translate it. It's the same exact language that we see in Exodus 19 when God on Mount Sinai reveals himself and there's fire and there's smoke when the tabernacle is going through the wilderness and there's a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. It's that, but now localized into a person that's moving, passing alone through the pieces. One writer put it this way. It's like lightning struck and then it held its form and had arms and legs and walked between the pieces of dead animal. And Abram can't believe what he's seeing. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're going to do all this. You're going to bless me. You're going to give all this abundance and prosperity and joy and peace and eternality. And I just have to lay here and be dead? And you're going to take the hit when I can't handle it? God says, shh. Now that's the gospel. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, 
to your offspring I give this land. From the river Egypt, that's actually not the Nile, but anyway, to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Fighting Texas A&M, Magaites, Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. They never really took all of that. They got close under David and Solomon. But one day, they will. God made covenant. He made a promise in chapter 12. He affirms it in chapter 15 with a covenant. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at chapter 16 and 17 and see that God gets even more precise, and he will make oath. So what do we take away from this? Let me just give you a couple quick implications of what we take away from this Genesis 15 text. Such a marvelous, rich text. Also, I should mention, we never actually have enough time, I never do, to actually exposit any of these passages completely in their fullness, or we would be here until the cobbler ran out. So every Monday, we record a podcast that kind of just deep dives and some more information, a little bit more detail, more discussion. I invite you to check out our podcast. You can find it on our website or Spotify or our SoundCloud login. Let me just give three quick implications. Number one goes like this. Our test is time. It's always a thing for believers. When I do counseling, when I do uh, pastoral things, when I talk about people who are dealing with uh, loss and illness and relationships, time is always our test. We experience the linear and sequential succession of moments, but God does not. We've all been there. We've all had some wonderful mountaintop kind of experience. We got married. Everything was pushing, 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 pushing up to that engagement and then pushing, 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 pushing to the wedding. And then we got married. We had honeymoon. It was awesome. And then it was like, what's on TV? And you kind of get, your soul gets stretched for this great, awesome experience. And then time passes. And your mind begins to wonder and your soul begins to grasp for that feeling of filling again. Look at Abram. I mean, my goodness, this guy goes and whips the four kings that beat the five kings with a bunch of servants and sheep herders. It's feeling pretty awesome. Yo, God, that was pretty great. I mean, I'm 75. Woo, let's do that again. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. And in those spaces of waiting and waiting and waiting, we functionally begin to doubt the goodness and the faithfulness and the sufficiency of God. And so inevitably we grasp for something else. This text is a marvelous reminder that God is working for our blessing even if we don't feel it or appreciate it or recognize it at the moment. We can trust him. God is faithful. He is good. Don't go grasping to try to fulfill God's promise of joy and fulfillment in your life. Number two goes with it. God never apologizes for our testing. You ever seen that? Like you'd kind of expect God to show up to everyone and go, Dude, I'm so sorry. I know it's been 10 years, and I know she's not getting any younger, but I'm sorry there was this whole thing happening in New Orleans. I'll tell you later. But God never apologizes. He's just like, mm-hmm, yeah, and that's the program. What's going on? He never tells him, I'm so sorry for taking so long that this is so hard and that you're going to die never actually had the fulfillment of this promise. Nope, God never does that. That's because God is God, and he has the ultimate perspective of eternity and the collective human condition all over the world through space and time and the recognition of what is all is happening in the angelic realm, all of those things. See, it's a big job to be God. I didn't touch on it, but there in Genesis 15, 16, God tells Abram, your offspring are going to go into Egypt for 400 years because the wickedness of the Amorites has not yet ripened. And Abram goes, who are the Amorites again? And what do they do? Well, it so happens they like to take their firstborn male heirs and roast them alive in brass bulls, and God hates that. 
You're going to get the land, but not one hour before their, ripe, their wickedness and their evil has ripened, and then you are going to come in and be the instrument of judgment because God will have his righteousness. And not only is God telling Abram that, Moses is telling the Israelites, this is why we're here. Do not forget, this has been God's plan all along. God is faithful, and God never apologizes for our testing. If God is taking longer on something than you wish he was, there's a very good chance he's working on preparations in and through somebody else for a different reason entirely. But he pulls them all together at the exact right time. So let's set our expectations accordingly so that we are never frustrated with God. If you keep praying and God doesn't answer, it's because he has a better idea. Can you just file that one away for later? If you keep praying and God doesn't answer the way you want, it's because he actually has a better idea. It's not because he's bored or distracted or disinterested or disappointed. It's because he's working something so much bigger and better than you can even imagine. Third point goes like this. Believing is behaving. Let me, let me unpack this just a second. We always act on what we really believe. We can't help it. Nobody can help it. You will always act on what you actually believe. Not what you say you believe. You'll always actually act on what you actually believe. We may say that we believe this and that, but whatever we're, we're doing day in and day out is a presentation and a proclamation of what we actually believe. So what do we actually believe? Now, God's not evaluating our behavior, praise God, because there's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We mess up all the time, and there's grace for that because of the gospel. God credits righteousness to Abraham because he believed. Yes, in God, of course, but Abram did what God said because he believed God was God. Abram spent no time going, gosh, maybe, maybe that wasn't really God I was hearing from. Maybe that was just my imagination. Maybe I should just do a few things so that I don't go to hell one day when I die. Maybe I should just say the right things. No, Abram built permanent altars and worshiped and moved his tent around because that's what God was telling him to do. Abram believed God and God said, that's what I'm talking about, faith. That's what I'm after. The context makes it clear that Abram believed what God said. Later, in the New Testament, James chapter 2, verse 23, James is going to say, faith works. Say you believe, but if nothing ever actually evidences and manifests out of that belief, there's no behavior on the back end of that belief, then you believe something different entirely. That's okay. There's grace for that. Well, we invite you to believe. We invite you to repent, to rethink your thinking, and to believe what do you really believe? How well we wait, whether with wisdom or without, is an indicator of what we really believe. So decide in advance and wait well. See, God is faithful. How are any of us actually going to be changed by our time together in this passage? Well, in a word, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. There was actually another time in your Bible that a dreadful heavy darkness fell on the land. And we see that at the cross of Christ at Calvary. See, every time we have an appearance of God in the Old Testament, we know that it is a pre-incarnate Christ, the second member of the Godhead Trinity. It's Jesus. We know in John chapter 12, verses 41, 42, that when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, that's actually Jesus. We call this a theophany. Every time God shows up in the Old Testament, it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. Who is it that walks through those pieces? It is a second member of the Godhead Trinity. It is a pre-incarnate Christ. It's him. It's the exact same description of this lightning that has become a person moving through. It's what we see in Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. It's what we see of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. It's him. 
He's the one who walks through the pieces to say, I know you can't hold up your end, but I will take the hit for you. May this happen to me. May I be undone. May I be torn to pieces. And we get to look in history 2,000 years ago and see that God, who cannot be ungodded, who cannot die, became human so that he would be torn to pieces and die on our behalf so that we would never, ever have to experience that. He became sin so that we might become his righteousness. So the question is, like Abram, do you believe this? How can you know if this is true? Do you believe what God's word says about what he has done? Our faithfulness is rooted in what he is, and he is God, and he cannot ungod God. Our anchor holds, is what the writer of Hebrews says. Long ago, God made a promise to Abraham, and that anchor holds. No matter what the storm at the cosmic level, that anchor, what God did in Christ at the cross, that anchor holds. Despite any other circumstance, despite any other pain, fear, uncertainty, or doubt, our anchor holds. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this day and the opportunity to walk through this word. I pray, God, that all those gathered on either of our three floors or watching remotely, will have caught a glimpse by your spirit of your glory in the finished work of Jesus. And Father, right now, if there is someone hearing my voice that has always wanted these things to perhaps be true but has never believed, would you do for them what you have done for the rest of us? And would you give them the gift of faith that they would believe? I may not be able to understand everything or explain everything, but they believe it's true. And would you begin the blossoming and the burgeoning of blessing in their lives? Would you challenge them with courage to talk with someone they know and love and trust about these very things, that they would begin a life of faithful following you? Father, for the rest of us who have gotten caught up in the ordeal of time, where we found ourselves, yes, trusting that you're good and all, but time has passed, and what have you done for me lately? Uh-huh. Would you remind us of your faithfulness, that we are to live lives of fulfilled joy and blessing because that's what this world needs. Father, I pray if anyone needs to have a conversation with an elder, a pastor, a friend, a family member, that this would be the day they would do that. And if anyone, Father, needs to be identified with your covenant community through believer's baptism, would you give them the courage to sign up for that as well? Father, thanks again for our time to be together in worship. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.